All right. How's everybody doing? If you got your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Some of y'all are going to wish we were back in chapter 8. So good. Thank you so much for reading. I'm so glad to have a reader this morning. Not that we're not going to cover quite a bit of the craziness that we got in Romans chapter 9, but um, it's, you know, Vanessa read it much more beautifully than I'll probably read it. So um, as we as we dig in today, Romans chapter 9, if... if uh, for those of you that have been in church for a while, some of you know that there's a little bit of a division in the church, some controversy when it comes to some of the doctrines that rise up from Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, several passages in First uh, and Second Corinthians when it comes to something we call the doctrine of election, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Uh, and it, it's, it's a disrupting thing. And I just want to say my hope today is not that we would all understand everything because even the Apostle Paul doesn't uh, claim to understand everything in Romans itself. He, he proclaims, hey, I've said a lot. I've talked about a lot. I've introduced you to the nature of God on many different angles and sides, but I couldn't possibly scratch the, the surface on the, on the knowledge of God, his, his heights, his depths. And in 11, he's like, I, I think we should just stop and worship for a second because this is blowing my mind. And hopefully today we stand in awe of the mystery of who God is, how he works, but also so thankful for his mercy and his compassion on us as his love comes to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about some of the questions that get disrupted in this passage, and you probably heard it, this passage kind of is choppy in the way it's written because it's connected to some other passages. But I love that we're, we're moving into this, this area because it, it brings something up that we probably talk about a lot, but you didn't know it. Like we've, we have fooled you into believing um, this about the Bible, the truth that we see rising up from scripture. Um, but you see some pretty in your face language as he talks about God's sovereignty. Like he knows there's a question that's rising up in the church in Rome and he's, he's very simple and clear with them about how people come to know Jesus. Is it human desire? Is it human will? Is it my effort and my wisdom that I wonderfully chose God or did God choose me? Did God pick me? Now there's implications with that that we're going to talk about, but we would say that God is the one that chooses. God is the one, as Dan said, comes into our death, comes into our, the death that has come at our own hands of our trespasses and brings us back to spiritual life. We've said this a lot in here. God did not come to make some naughty people a little bit better. And that's why we come to church because you were naughty and we need to get a little better. He comes to bring the dead to life. But this passage begins to disrupt some things because we think about if God is sovereign before time, then what are the implications to that? In choosing some and not choosing others as he, as he uses the example in this passage of Esau and Jacob. Now, before we get into that, I, I, wanna, I wanna say, and for me, as I approach this passage, because about 18 years ago, and many years I had studied the Bible or had heard the Bible, I was in a Christian school for 15 years, nobody ever preached Romans 9, 10, or 11. I just never heard it. I don't, and there was a reason, because it is uncomfortable, because it does disrupt some things, that we don't approach Romans 9, often in the evangelical church. We should because it's, you can't have Romans chapter eight, which is amazing. You know, you've got the beautiful hug that we got last week from, from Ari and Mike Berry. You know, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is good news. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Adopted 
sons and daughters. We're no longer chained to the flesh and, and condemned because of the flesh. Now we can live life in the spirit. That's all good news and we love it. You know, it's sweet. This is, this is less of a hug. Um, and, but it's, we can't have that because it's all about the, solidif the solidifying and the firm foundation of the promises in Romans chapter eight. But I was thinking about how to approach this and, and what my mind kind of did when I, when I was intersected with this type of theology. It's not even a, a way of thinking. It's right here in the Bible. And several years ago, um, I was, we were celebrating my wife's 40th birthday. I, I guess I shouldn't say it was several years ago. Make her sound like she's ancient. Um, it was a few years ago. We were celebrating uh, my wife's 40th birthday. And uh, we dropped our kids off at the McFerrin's house. They live right down the road. Dan McFerrin, you just saw this morning, if you haven't met him before. He's awesome. Watched my kids many times. With it. Actually, he didn't watch them at all. He just kind of played with them, threw them around and said, Ann, can you feed these people? Um, but we went, we, went on our, we went on our date for 40th birthday. We went to Roy's, nice restaurant, took her out, um, you know, just you know, remembered why we love each other. That's what dates are for. And then we pulled into the driveway about eight o'clock at the McFerrin's. And at that point, 40th birthday. I mean, that's kind of a big one, right? Um, and so we pulled into the driveway and Beth's kind of wondering like, what else is there? And I'm like, well, let's get the kids. We're going to go home. And you know, it's great. It's nice going to Roy's. And she's so nice. She wasn't saying anything like, is this it? <laughs> that's all you got for me? Can we, and she said nicely, you know, can we go get a cup of coffee? Can we, you know, can we, you know, it's, the kids are fine. The parents got them. I was like, no, we really need to go up there and get them. I got some stuff to do tomorrow. You know, it's kind of, what she did not know. And I felt bad because, you know, then the conversation kind of stretched out more and more. And she was like, hey, why don't we go? And I'm like, no, we shouldn't go. What she didn't know is there was about 50 or 60 people upstairs at the McFerrin's house waiting for us. And I had, I had been planning for weeks, weeks, weeks in advance, had made this unbelievable video for her, you know, showing that I know who she is as a person and why I love her and all that good stuff. Um, and she had no idea. And so she's thinking, he's kind of, you know, he's, this is, what, this is, is this it? And then it's, it was amazing. And she turned the, like she was walking up the stairs, you know, we're going to get the kids and she makes the turn on the landing to go up the stairs. And right about here, she starts to see and feel just all of the glaring eyes. Like, and all of a sudden she turned around and surprise. she was like, <gasps> and instantly tears and like looking at me like, I'm terrible. I didn't mean what I thought you were a dirt bag and you're not a dirt bag. It's amazing. Um, and today, I'm not saying it's going to be like a surprise birthday party. There might be some tears, but um, I, I, th this, this, just even thinking about that, like it, when you approach Romans 9, it is frustrating at first. And then you start to realize that God has been planning things long before I ever could possibly have imagined that he loved me. He loved me a lot, that he knows more about me than I ever thought. That, that, hey, everybody's invited and they're upstairs, but you're my favorite. I mean, that's the, this, this way that we come into this is a, is a beautiful, beautiful passage. If we miss that, if we don't stand in awe of one, in wonder, just thinking about how much God loves us, how mysterious he is, that he actually is in control, that he actually does make plans in advance, that he actually is prepared, that he actually knew who I was before the foundation of the earth, that he actually knows every hair on my head, that he actually knit me together in my mother's womb. Womb, and that he predestined me before the dawn of time to be picked and to be chosen, which is part of the desire that's inside of us to be ultimately picked and chosen, to be approved of, not just by people, but be approved of by the king of the universe. So the implications here should take our breath away, but I get it. It's troubling when we dig into this passage because 
thinking about the way that God works brings up three, three things that don't seem to fit together really well. One is God wants to say, wants everybody saved. We know that in scripture. God wants everybody saved. God could save everyone. Here's the big boo-boo. God does not. He doesn't. That's just a reality. And for me, 18 years ago, when I encountered this, I'm just like, man, this shouldn't be the way it is. In my heart, I think it, that, that's not justice. That's not God. That's the way I, I thought. Now, the problem with saying that is I thought in my heart, that's not fair. I mean, that was me. I mean, our heart is deceitful above all things. We all know that one day we're thinking this thing and one day we're thinking this. One day we're really angry at somebody. The next day we think they're awesome and we realize that we were wrong. From moment to moment, we change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our heart is deceitful. And my thoughts are myopic and small based on my circumstances in the very brief micron of a life I've lived in the comparison of who God is. And so if I think I'm going to understand God, if I think I can explain away a difficult passage in these moments, that's not what I'm here to do. That's not why God's got me in this position. I'd rather get to heaven and God say, hey, you preached everything a little too literally than get to heaven and say, why did you skip around and dance around passages like this to, to fit your theological thought process rather than preach them just the way that I laid them out in scripture? So we're going we're gonna to look at the Word of God today. We're not going to jump over Romans 9. We're going to dig into the hard stuff. And here's the good news today. We'll answer some questions today about how, is it, how in the world can we possibly think these things about God? That, hey, God is mighty to save. God's desires that all should be saved, but God does not save all. I mean, that's just difficult and in your face. We'll have some answers. And the bad news is there won't be, we won't walk away with all the answers. There's no way we could. Paul didn't have all the answers. He scratched his head. He threw his hands up and it, it put him in the position to worship. He's like, I don't get all this. This is crazy and amazing and troubling, but you are mysterious. You are in awe. You are in control and you love me and I'm glad. And I'm glad. And hopefully we end up in that place today. Here's, the, here's another kind of picture of the tension in Romans chapter nine, Right? And this is the one a lot of us probably, this people in evangelical church world, like if, you, if you've gone to church or grown up in church, this is, and I'm just saying this for people, if, if you're new to church, this is a thing for these weird church people. They get all caught up in this idea of God's sovereignty and man's free will. Like God, how could God be completely and utterly so sovereign that he predestined people? That he chose people before the foundation of the world. How could he be that sovereign? Man has free will. Of course he does. Look, I got a pen, right? I dropped it. God, is God, did I, is this God predetermined before the dawn of time that I would drop the pen? Of course I have free will. I walk around, I do the things that I want to do. I sin and I do good things. I, I make mistakes and I try to get better. I, I, I determine my steps. I, I move around. I, I have life. We all understand free will. How could there be God's sovereignty? And then the God's sovereignty people are saying, hey, we see it in scripture. God is sovereign above all things. That he determines, he, before the foundation of the world, before when Esau... And Jacob, uh, yeah, and Jacob were in the womb. One I moved towards and one I moved away from. One I love and just as harsh as it is in scripture, one I hated. Crazy, right? Before the dawn of time and God 
God's proclamation through Paul is, hey, I do what I want. And it's harsh, right? I have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. I have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. So you've got this kind of, you know, which is it? Is, do we have free will? Did, did we choose God? Did he, you know, why, you know, is there, you know, are we just robots walking around? Well, of course not. Well, then how does that work with God's sovereignty? And there's this kind of tension in the church and where you lean. And I'll just say this, no matter where you are on the spectrum, there's people at extreme ends of both of those. I'll just say that. Like completely free will. That's like, uh, there's God's actually not in control of everything. He spins things into motion. Then he sits back and goes, y'all please do the right thing. Oh no, that's open theism. That's like a whole extreme free will. And then there's the like hyper Calvinist over here. That's like, that doesn't believe in any type, any form of humans doing anything. They would be more of the robotic type of explanation. They would, they would, they would lightly preach the, 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 the gospel of God's love, you know, pursuing us recklessly. But then there's the truth of God's word, which we, you know, uh, there's a lot of things we're probably going to get to heaven and God's going to go, yeah, you got that wrong. Um, But there's things that are very clear in here that we are going to get right today. And then some that we're going to have to scratch our head and go, you know what? I am not quite sure. But I mean, you think about it. What questions are coming up in this passage already in your mind? Here's some of them. How can God be just, loving, and sovereign? Choosing some, but not all for salvation. That's an obvious one. If God is sovereign, then why am I responsible for sin? That's in the passage. He says, hey, I know you guys, you know, are going to ask this question. Why am I responsible for the things that I do if God is sovereign? If it's God's will, who can resist his will? why, Why am I the person that's responsible for that? He predetermined things. You're, you're like, how in the world is Derek going to get himself out of this, right? Y'all, some of y'all are, that's like nervous laughter. You're like, <laughs> yeah, this is going to be awkward. It's not, I promise. Why should we pray? Why should we pray? If God is sovereign above all things, why would, you know, why would we, why would we pray? Why would we evangelize? I mean, doesn't this kind of, this doctrine that we're seeing fly off the pages in Romans 9, doesn't that kill? And if they like, why am I going to do anything? You know, I'm just going to sit at home and eat Cheetos and watch the sovereignty of God happen, right? Netflix has now become more awesome because we don't have to do much in the church. Why would we carry the gospel? What happens to our mission and vision statement here at Ocean City Church with evangelism? We exist to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus alone. It is the centerpiece of what we're doing here, what we believe God's called us to. How does that fit in? It does, but how? If he's sovereign above all things, if he preordained this group of people and didn't ordain this group of people, again, I'm building tension here. Some of y'all are like, man, this is getting heavy. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're all going to walk out of here and have lunch, I promise. Um, so I want to break this down. I, for me, I've always had to take this in, in bite sizes, like, you know, just kind of take some nibbles and then go home with it, talk to people, meet with people. And we should. We can't skip over this because without... Without Romans 9, Romans 8 would be, there would, it would be a softness to Romans 8. And this is, this, this, is, this is like a hammer that nails Romans 8 to the wall. I mean, it's amazing, amazing, amazing to have this in Scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over these four questions. One, what is the purpose of Romans 9? Why would the Apostle Paul bring this up? 
What is so troubling? We've already kind of covered why it's a little troubling. Um, if God is sovereign in all things, why are we responsible for sin? Why should we pray? And where's the good news in Romans chapter 9? Please, Lord, bring the good news, right? All right, so what's the purpose of Romans chapter 9? Um, this, is, this is easy. I won't spend a lot of time here, but the Apostle Paul, so as we have those promises that we, we hear in Romans chapter 8, if you weren't here last week, Mike Berry covered you know, a, a portion of that and mentioned some other passages that really are amazing. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite, if not my favorite chapter in the Bible, my favorite verse obviously uh, is right there at the top of Romans um, in uh, Romans chapter 8. So you hear all of these promises. It says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's amazing news. We're adopted sons and daughters as followers of Jesus. That what Jesus did on the cross made a way for me to be back in relationship with God and nothing now can separate me from the love of God. Okay, so here's the question that was rising up in the church at the time, right? This is what people at church were asking Paul, the, the guy that, you know, was the apostle, was the missionary, was the, the dude cruising around preaching the gospel is, hey, what about what happened to the Israelites? Because right now in the church, in the church of Rome, these, there was more Gentiles than Jews. There was more Gentiles coming to know Jesus than Jews overall now at this point in time. So they're saying, what happened? Because there was all these promises to Abraham, to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, that they were God's chosen people. Go back and read the Old Testament. I, we will be your people and you will be our God. I will be your God and you will be my people. I mean, it, that, that was the, the promise, the promise to Abraham, the promise to Isaac, the promise to Jacob. It was kind of how it got all passed down. What happened? It seems as though, this is the question that was rising up, it seems as though their salvation is slipping through the fingers of God. How solid could Romans 8 be? How solid could this thing you're saying that, that nothing can separate me from the love of God if we look at all of the Jews that are not accepting Jesus? They don't believe in the resurrection. What about them? And so this is, the, this Romans 9 is the response to that. Do you get it? He's saying, I want to let you know just how solid the promises of God are, that God has not failed in any way. That is why we see what we see in, the, in this passage and why he's saying what he's saying. What does he say in verse six? He says, it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. What he's saying is, to be in the family of God, to be a, be a follower of God, to be one of God's chosen didn't mean that it was just that they were related to Abraham. He's saying your lineage doesn't matter. It is not about your bloodline. It was, it was always about the heart and it was about God and who God wanted it to be. It wasn't like, and, and he, he makes this example. He says, look, not everybody that was related to Abraham was, you know, part of the covenant promise. Look at Esau and Jacob, right? Jacob, we were down with Jacob. Esau, not so much. Look at Isaac, you know, and he's, he's bringing that up knowing that they would know Ishmael. Look at Isaac, yes, Ishmael, no. Look, look at the whole landscape of scripture, all of the people that were a part of the covenant promise of Israel that weren't even Israelites. Look at Ruth, she was a Moabite. She was not a part, and all of a sudden she's in it, right? You look at Rahab. Saying about Jericho, she was at Jericho. She helped out a lot. She was a prostitute. She's in the lineage of Christ. She is not an Israelite. So Paul's bringing that up going, hey guys, look at this. 
I'm just telling you, if you're banking on it, if you're a Jew and you're banking on your Abrahamic covenant, that's not how it works. And if you're a Gentile and you're wondering if these promises are solid because you're looking at your Jewish brothers and going, there's a lot of them that are on the outside looking in that don't believe in the resurrection that obviously aren't Christians, aren't followers of Jesus. What happened to them? People were nervous and Paul's going, I'm going to put an end to this and I'm going to do it pretty harshly and, and, and tell them that God is sovereign in all things, that God knows exactly what he was doing. Not only are his promises good and valid, but he's the one, they're, they're not making the decision whether or not they're, they're going to do the right thing, walk down the right road. Their human effort is not what's going to save them. So he goes on, he says, on the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not, and this is where he says it, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And then he goes on and says, the ones that God chooses, the ones that God picks. So now we understand, okay, that's what it's about. Why is Romans 9 written? It's to say that you have assurance in the promises that God has in his sovereignty, that he is bigger than you thought. Nothing will ever slip through his fingers. He will fulfill everything he wants to fulfill. Now, in answering that question, he brings up other questions, doesn't he? Right? So what is so troubling about Romans 9? We talked about it. If God wants to save all, if God can save all, why does he not save all? Verse 10, it says, not only that, he continues, Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. He's talking about, remember, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay, conceived at the same time. Yet before the twins were born, listen to this. Before the twins were born, and had, nothing, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. Talking about God, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore, listen, this is, this is so important. Verse 16. This is why he's saying what he's saying. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. He's making the point that you are not going to be the one that goes out and finds God. You will not put yourself in the family of God. You will not put yourself inside the covenant promise. God is the one that extends mercy. God is the one who extends that compassion. We don't buy it. We don't earn it. We don't walk down a, a better road than somebody else and grab a hold of it. He's saying it will come at the hands of God. Now, this doctrine is called something. Some of you are going to shiver a little bit. It's unconditional election. It's what we see in Ephesians chapter one right here. For he chose us in him before the cre uh, creation of the world. And we love this, this passage. We've preached it here many times. He chose us in him. Like there's a desire for every human being. God built you with this desire to be picked, to belong, to be chosen. And then we see such an amazing truth that Guess what? I was wanting Larry to choose me because I like Larry and me and Larry want to be friends and I wanted Larry. This is even better. King of universe. He chose me in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. That's what Mike Berry talked about as we were in Romans 8. Through Jesus Christ in accordance with 
you know, because I was real good in accordance with, yeah, I just, I did a lot of good stuff and, and made some decisions. And then finally I just said, you know what? I think I'm going to become a Jesus follower. No, it was his pleasure and his will to the play, praise of his glorious grace. For, why, why does he do it? For his glory. And we are the glad recipients of his compassion and mercy, aren't we? Which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. So here, that's this thing called unconditional election. Here it is, 8.28 in Romans. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the doctrine of election says this. It says that God elects individual persons to salvation, irrespective of any conditions of will, effort, desire, or ability. God does it, you do not. He is absolutely free to save whomever he so desires, and he is absolutely just and right in doing so. Now, a lot of us would probably nod our head yes to that, but also how uncomfortable it is to nod our head and say, he is absolutely just and right to do it. Because there's always that thing floating around there that God's desire is that all would be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever uh, believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We have all of those floating around in our mind, all sitting next to unconditional election. And it's uncomfortable, right? Okay, so... Here's the things I want to say about this being troubling. One is no matter where we are on the spectrum of I'm a free willer or I'm a sovereignty of God, doctrine of unconditional election, Calvinist reformed guy over here, no matter where we are, we all have the same problem. If we believe in the nature of God in the way that Christians do, we all, I mean, all of us in the room would say if we're, if we're a follower of Jesus that God knows the future. Like, I mean, I hope we do because we, we, we know that he wins in the end. And if he didn't know the future, how would we know that he wins in the end? I mean, we, we are banking on our glorious future. We know that. We preach that. We all surround ourselves with that. Any evangelical church, Bible-believing church says God knows the future. So on the uncomfortable side, if we're thinking about um, the, you know, believing in the sovereignty of God, we see what that, that theology is, that God preordained it. He predestined it. It's what we see in Ephesians 1. It's what we see in Romans 8 and 9. Preordination, predestination. He chose. God picks. God selects. He extends mercy and compassion. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, not naughty and made a good decision and decided to follow Jesus. That's that side. Okay, let's go to the free will side. Now, if we go this route on, I'm just, I, we all have, we, we determine everything. Self-determining will. God will not oppose my free will. He wants to make sure I select and pick him. Well, even if that's the case, if God, many, many years ago, many, many moons ago, whenever, back in you know, eternity past, makes the decision to create the human race, instantaneously, guess what he knows? Even if he says, I'm going to let them do what they want. They are not going to be, they're, they're, they're going to do, they're going to act and, and react and do the things that they want to do. They will always have free will. I will have to stand back and wait, bite my nails, wondering whether or not they are going to choose me. Even if that were the case, guess what? Same problem, right? Because either he ordained it or he created us knowing in an instant exactly who would be in and who would be out. So either he ordained it or by proxy, he ordained it. 
So I'm not saying it's not uncomfortable. I mean, the truth of, of God's sovereignty in many ways, when we look at it, is uncomfortable. But we're all in the same place. We all are, we're dealing with this mystery that the Apostle Paul's like, I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. That God is loving, that he is just, that he weeps over us, that he cares about us, that he's relentless in his pursuit of us, but he also predestined and preordained and selected and picked us. I don't get it all or how it all works, but it's in here and it is part of the nature of God and it's part of the truth that the Apostle Paul's bringing up out of the word of God. So we all have that same issue. The second thing is, if we're honest about it, we're glad that this is an unconditional thing. I mean, for us as human beings, that is what we really are. We, there's something deep inside of the way that God created us to want our interactions with people, want our interactions with the world around us to be more unconditional. Right now, we live in a conditional world and we hate it. Everything's predicated on our performance. But if we think about how I would, the way I want to be a good parent is to love my children unconditionally. And we, we want that, right? I sh it shouldn't be about how they perform. Did they make an A or a B? How good were they in sports? If you do these things, if you, if you are a good, if you're a great athlete, if you can crush it on the SAT, then I'll love you. No, we are so thankful that God's not like that. And we hope by his example, we're unconditional parents that no matter what you do, no matter what mistakes you make, no matter how far you run, I will always come after you. I will always love you. I will always intervene in your free will to turn you around and to bring you home. That's what we want. As uncomfortable as it is, we, we desire this. The songs that we sing and we elevate sometimes here in the church, if you're old school, you know, oh, how I love Jesus. You remember that? Oh, how I love Jesus. What? Because, because I first loved him? No, because he first loved me. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming love, right? Reckless love, which some people think is a theologically wrong song, just to use the word reckless. I have less of a problem with it because it's so theologically correct in the sense that I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it because I would never in my free will go in that direction is what that, that is saying to me. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Yet he gives himself away. There's something about this unconditional nature of the way that God operates that we know is good and right, even though it's uncomfortable. What would be the other side of that? A God that's sitting back, biting his nails, going, I hope. I'm hoping he turns around. I'm hoping he, he goes in this direction. Do we really want to reduce the cross of Jesus Christ to the cross Plus, like when Jesus said it's finished, well, it's not quite finished. It's going to be the cross. Jesus pours out his blood on Calvary, dies on the cross, a brutal death, suffers for you and me, goes into the grave to be raised gloriously. And then all of a sudden it's the cross, it's death, burial, and resurrection, and Derek's great smart decision to follow Jesus. No, it's the cross. It is sufficient to save what God did on the cross, what Jesus did as he died on the cross and, and was raised by the power of God from the dead was sufficient for you and for me. We never want to reduce the cross. We never want to lean towards any type of thinking or theology that would reduce the cross because we see it so clearly in scripture that the cross was enough, that the cross was, God didn't make a mistake and, and leave it in our hands. Thank goodness my salvation is not in my hands. 
I need a God that is mighty to save and powerful to save. And what's the, what's the problem with us thinking that we don't want God to intervene in, in our free will? We, we, God should, should extend people and let them be, be free will beings and he shouldn't mess with free will. That's the way that things should be. That's the way that I think God would be is he wouldn't intervene in my free will. Please, God, intervene in my free will. As I'm walking towards the cliffs in my life, that I'm a knucklehead and I want to jump off them, that I've got a God that will reach in and he will intervene in his sovereignty in my free will and say, no, you're going the other way. No, I'm going to pull you back. I think I'm headed to the beach, right? And I'm actually headed to hell. I was like, it's warm over here. Nope. We're turning you around. It's what we do as parents. I mean, you wouldn't have lived as long as you have lived if your parents' sovereign will over you hadn't intervened in your free will. You, I mean, you would have been dead a long time ago. You would have, they would have said, oh, look, it's cute. He's drinking the bleach under the sink. No, you intervened. You intervened. We want a God that comes in and violates our free will and imposes his sovereignty and says, nope, you're mine. You're mine. Praise be to God that he came and he intervened in my free will because He intervened when I was walking away, when I didn't care, when I could have cared less about God. And he was was relentlessly like the hound of heaven chasing me down and saying, I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna intervene. I'm coming after you. It's the God I wanna serve. It's that God that's relentless. If God is sovereign in all things, then why are we responsible for sin? So we know this is troubling. We see why Paul wrote it, but man, there's other questions that come up, right? If God is sovereign in all things, then why are we responsible for sin? Why should we pray? Apostle Paul calls it out, but doesn't quite answer it the way that we want him to. He says, one of you are going to say, and I'm sure one of you are going to say it. Why does, why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, O human being, to talk back to God? Shall the form say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? I mean, Paul punts this and says, hey, do you know who you're talking to? And then he goes on to say, hey, you're the molded. You're not the molder. You don't get to talk back. He gets to have compassion on whom he has compassion. He gets to have mercy on whom he has mercy. And they're going, why is this fair? It's not our fault, but it is our fault. It is our fault. I mean, I think we make have that question, but sin is our responsibility. Like there was a reason that Jesus had to die and it wasn't because God made a mistake or God, God fouled something up. We did. We were the rebels. We walked away. Well, then how does all this work? Well, listen, I, I heard this illustration once and I like it. Um, it's, it's not complete, doesn't answer all your questions, but it does answer the question of responsibility. So just imagine me and the rest of the elders, we decide to rob a bank because that sounds like a good idea. You know, the fellowship fund's a little light. We need to rob a bank. Um, so me, Dan McFerrin, Dan Cooter, Darren Vyinger, Mike Berry, we're going to go rob a bank, right? And then all of a sudden, our associate pastor, who is much wiser than all of us, Dave Sarmack, says, stop, as we're going to get in the car. Don't run to all of us. He extends because his desire is that we don't rob the bank. That's what he wants. Don't do it. But then, as we're getting ready to leave, he grabs Mike Barry and tackles him and runs away. And the rest of these knuckleheads, 
Me, Dan, Dan, and Darren, we shoot two guards, we rob the bank, we end up in prison. Guilty as charged. We were guilty. Well, guess who else is guilty? Mike Berry. Of course Dave would save Mike Berry. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? The responsibility. It's not Dave Sarmax. Like, is it his fault that the bank got robbed? Is it his fault that there was this plan hatched to rob the bank? Is, this, is it his fault that there was sin in Mike Berry's heart and Dan's heart and my heart and Darren's heart? Is it his fault? Now, why didn't he save the rest of these guilty jokers and tackle us all in his sovereignty? That I have no answer to the question. But it's certainly not his fault that the bank got robbed. You picking up what I'm laying down? We don't know. Why just Mike Berry? Why are these? But guess what? It's just, his, it's, it's, it's mercy, not justice. They got justice. Dan, Derek, and Darren, the three Ds, they got justice. Guilty. Because the reality for everybody in the room, and, and the Apostle Paul's been preaching this in the previous chapters, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. While we were in our sin, while we were in our rebellion, Christ died for you. So in extending mercy and extending grace at his pleasure and his will, that's all God's, but he certainly is not responsible for our sin. So why should we pray if God is sovereign? I say, why pray if he's not? I mean, why would you want to pray to the God that's like, oh, I, I hope, I hope, I hope things go well. I'm not completely in control of this though. You can give it a shot. Throw some prayers at me. I might be able to get things done. Or, you know, I've got a relative that, that is, you know, educated at Harvard. They, they, they're resistant to anything about God or Christianity. I've been praying for 30 years for them to come to know Jesus. And God's standing back going, well, I can't violate their free will. You know, I got to sit back. I got to wait until they finally, in their wisdom, make a good choice and start to move towards me in their faith and belief. Rather than God saying, you know what? Guess what I can do in my sovereignty? I can take out that heart of stone in an instant and put in a heart of flesh. That's the God I want to follow. That's the God I want to pray to. The one that is sovereign over all things. That can intervene in any moment. Who knows everything, can see around everything, can see around all things. Why evangelize? I look at the Apostle Paul. Like, why evangelize? Look, I, this is, I'm not telling you I have all the answers because I know there's a lot of unanswered questions on the table as I'm even saying all of this stuff. But think about what Paul's saying, but then look at what he's doing. First Corinthians chapter nine, he says, I'm free from any and all men. I've been saved. I'm, I, don't, I don't need to do anything to impress anybody. He says, but what do I do? Even though I'm free, I make myself a slave to save any and all. I do all these things. I change, I, 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 I go in creatively with different types of groups of people so that I might save some. He aggressively evangelized, shipwrecked twice, snake bitten, I mean, beaten to a pulp in prison a lot. At the end of his days, he was leaning against the wall in prison. He says, hey, can you pray for me? And I'd be praying to get out of prison. But he says, when you, can you pray for me that when I open my mouth that I will boldly preach the gospel for which I'm in chains? He pretty aggressively evangelized and he wrote this. So what's the answer? Why evangelize? I, there is, there's, there's more than what we're, our minimal mind can think about, about what it means for us. Does it matter? Is it desperate for us to lead people to Jesus? Absolutely. It is critical. It is dire. It's what we see rising up off the pages of scripture. 
It's amazing that, that, that we've got that. We've got the Apostle Paul, we've got his evangelistic heart, and then he writes this. It kind of answers the question for you. All right, so where is the good news in Romans 9? Like, what, what is the good news? We felt some of it. Like, I think we, we feel that tension kind of rise up and then we're, we're, we understand the unconditional nature of God's love and the way that he comes. I am glad that he chose me, that he picked me. Sometimes I just need to sit back and say, thank you. But you know what else? I got three things here. Where's the good news? One is God is not bound by our reasoning and thought. I love what uh, Melissa Kruger says, just even thinking about Romans chapter 11. She says, just because I do not understand how something can be so does not mean it is not so. It simply means my understanding is insufficient. Surely God can be and act in ways outside of our ability to comprehend. As Paul rightly questions, this is Romans 11, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? God is not bound by our reasoning and thought. I'm glad I have, we, we serve a God that I can't figure out. Like, is that the one that you want to pray to? Is that the one? And so I was thinking about the things that seem to not fit when we think about who, the nature of God and God in Scripture. So I, I could have gone crazy with this diagram. I know that it's hard to read, but I'll read it for you. So we've got, you got the rectangle that can never be the circle and the circle that can never be the rectangle, Right? So we've got on the sovereign side, some of the stuff we've just heard. Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I mean, that's this predestination thing that we're all so uncomfortable with. The sovereignty of God before the dawn of time that he chose me, he picked me in Ephesians 1, Romans 9. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will use people for my will and my glory, right? It's what he says. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's God's sovereignty. And if we left that by itself and didn't really read any other scripture, that would, that would, that would give you one element of God. And we might think he is kind of distant and mean and angry and he's just doing things to make himself look good. And he's just not, he's not a nice guy. But that's not the truth because 1 Timothy 2.3 says, this is good. This is the circle that doesn't fit with the square, right? And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who does, listen, who desires all people, go figure, I don't even know, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Lord is not slow and key. That's uh, second uh, Peter or first Peter two. Um, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise and some understand, as some understand slowness. Listen, instead he is patient with you. I'm glad he's patient. Not wanting anyone to perish. He don't want anyone to go down. He's a loving God, but everyone to come to repentance. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I thought you said it's an elect few. I thought you said it's a select, but he's saying whoever, all not perish. He desires all to be saved. How do they work together? I don't know. This rectangle can't be that circle. How does that even work? What does that even look like? But the reality is, for, for you and for me is we see things in this two-dimensional framework, right? We see this flat level. We see the square can't be the circle. The rectangle can't be the circle. The circle can't be the rectangle. But God is the alpha, the omega. He's not bound by space and time. He sees things from every angle. He sees things from the top, from the bottom, from the side, from the back, in every view, in every way. He's the beginning and the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature and attributes, he is other than us. He is different than us. And I look at this right here. I think about the way that 
we see things and we think the circle can't be. What is that? A rectangle. For those of you that are difficult and didn't do well in geometry. It's a rectangle. But guess what also it is? It's a circle. See, God sees every aspect, every side. God can be whatever he wants, do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Redemption's never out of his view. Salvation is never out of his view. Nothing is ever lost, thank God. He, he, he can wipe tears from the eyes of all of us at the end of time if he wants. He's going to do that. He can do whatever he wants. Now, how does it all work? I don't know, but I do know that I have a limited view and God does not have a limited view. We are glad that we're not, he's not bound by our reasoning and thought. And with that, God's in control and I'm not. This blows up our man-centered world, doesn't it? In our humanness, we wanna say, ah! But then in our awe and our wonder, we realize in a year, think about 2020. I mean, are you glad, do, do you want a God that's sovereign above all things? Or do you want one that's going, oh no, the election's coming up. What are we gonna do? Or one that controls the authorities, one that dictates what's going to happen, one that knows exactly, no matter if the person that ends up in office completely has no, doesn't care about God at all. God, that doesn't worry God. Over, over history, God has used some of the most evil people on the planet for his own purposes and will. I mean, Jesus entered into the world by a decree. I mean, all of this happened and there was a decree at that time from Julius, from Caesar himself. And what happens? The story is kicked off in God's sovereignty that he would, that he would grow, he would live a perfect life for you and me, and then he would die for you and me and then raised to life by God's power. We want God in control because no matter where we are, no matter what's going on, viral pandemic, crazy election year, racial reconciliation, racial tension, racial craziness, church kind of in a weird spot for some people, God knows what he's doing and we can trust him. His promises are good. They're not flimsy. That's what the apostle Paul is trying to say. You can stand firmly in this place, no matter where you are, whether you're in the valley, whether you're in the, in the best place on, on planet earth, whether you don't know why God's doing what he's doing or you're starting to see the clear path that God has for you. You can say, I trust him. I can have assurance that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he'll, he relentlessly comes after me. And that's the third one. God is relentless. He's not, he's not passive in salvation. He's not sitting back waiting for us. He is relentless. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He preempted, he came in, he did it. First John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice of sin, to sin. You know, uh, I was thinking about the stories of, of many people here that have become believers. Um, and I, I got to be around in the, you know, in, in orbit when these things were happening and watching people come to know Jesus. And um, so many of the stories are, I, I had no, I don't know how I ended up in this place. I don't know why I'm a Christian. I don't know what, what happened, but, but it could only be God. Because I had, I mean, you look at my life two years ago, I had no desire. I didn't, want, I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't have any, I mean, 
story after story after story after story. Actually, somebody in our, in our uh, church has a passage in John chapter uh, 12. I think it's verse 26. Um, and it's this, it's this specific word about how God is bringing us home, how God is drawing us. It's the word draw. God draws people unto himself, it says in the gospel of John. And Jesus is using those words. I will draw these people to me. And if you look at the Greek in that word, and this person had it tattooed to their arm because they're like, this is my story. The, the, the point of Greek is to drag. He drags them home. And I get that picture. And that's, that's the picture of a sovereign, loving God that loves you unconditionally. That he comes to, to drag, to, when we don't want it, but he knows what's best for us. He knows who he is and how it's gonna go down. He drags us home because he loves us. It's a little frustrating at first. And then you realize he's been planning things for me for a long time. And as we round the staircase, we realize how much he loves us, that he knows more about us than we ever thought. We realize that he's inviting everyone, but I'm his favorite. Let's stand. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love what you do for us. We love your word that your desire is that we, we dig in, that you, you're not going to let us just kind of float along without a clear human vantage point and picture of you. You want us to stand in awe and wonder. You want us to revel in the mystery. You want us to, to see and experience how much you love us. But you also want us to pine for the future and when we'll see you face to face. Just come, Holy Spirit disrupt our heart in the best way.